You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we're resharing some of the older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it could be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that. And you can pick up with our new episodes next week. That's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. I just want insurance to win. If you're venture back, bootstrapped, if you're public, if you're on Mars, whatever, whatever you're doing, like I just want you to win. I want all entrepreneurs to win. And so in today's episode, I chat with Andrew Gazdecki about what microacquire is, how he built it, and what his goal is with the company how he thinks about smaller bootstrap companies versus large venture-backed ones that are trying to be worth billions of dollars, why VC-backed companies generally get all the news coverage, and what Andrew is doing to change this, and a bunch more. Andrew has been an entrepreneur for longer than he can remember. He likes to build stuff, mostly companies, and tries to tell a story that goes beyond what the company does to how it's changing markets. He started two companies, Business Apps and Altcoin.io, that have both been acquired. Today, Andrew is the CEO of Microacquire, which is the only platform connecting startup buyers and sellers anonymously. In 2014, his company was listed as the number two fastest growing company in San Francisco by Inc. 500. And in 2017, he was featured in Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 Entrepreneurs. I originally gravitated towards Andrew's content because he and I see eye to eye on a business philosophy that not a lot of people really talk about. Everyone seems to be focused on building the largest, fanciest, most innovative companies, which, you know, can be great, but I also believe there's a huge opportunity for people to build very real businesses that aren't in the billions of dollars range and are between, say, a few hundred thousand and a few million. Andrew talks a ton about that on social, and we discuss it in depth here in this episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Andrew Gazdecki. Andrew, welcome to the show. Robert, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Give us a quick rundown on your background and how you got to where you are today. So I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Really, that stems from candidly growing up poor. I was born in Detroit. And that was kind of like a weird cliche story, but entrepreneurship kind of like saved my life in a way, I like to say. You know, when you don't grow up with means, you know, you kind of gravitate towards like hustling and building businesses because you kind of have to as like a survival mechanism. So dad passed away when I was six, moved to um, a beautiful town called San Clemente when I was five. So that also kind of amplified like what money was to me. Cause like I'd go over to my friend's houses and they had like these oceanfront, like million dollar mansions and stuff like that. We never hung out at my house. And so that, you know, kind of put money at the forefront for me. So that led me to start businesses very early. 
like eBay stores. I had a World of Warcraft website, like affiliate thing. It's kind of embarrassing to admit. I used to do this thing where I'd start a new business every summer, knowing you would fail just so I could learn. Like, how do I make a website? How do I set up Google ads? How do I make a Photoshop design and all that stuff? And then I guess my entrepreneurial career kind of took off, however you want to define success. When I launched a a job board called Phone Freelancer, basically connected um, mobile developers or specifically iPhone developers because Android wasn't out. I saw the iPhone come out in college and I was like, that's next. This is the next internet. And so I jumped on it. And I started seeing people post jobs for really simple apps, lots of commonality in terms of the functionality. So I thought, okay, there's these do-it-yourself website builders. Why isn't there a do-it-yourself mobile app builder for small businesses? Because these people are paying like 50 grand. And what if I made like a template? And like, so sold that job board for like, I think it was like 50 to 100 grand. I can't remember. But it definitely felt like a trillion, billion, gazillion dollars that was in college at the time. I went to CSU Chico State, Harvard of the West. Are you familiar with Chico State? No, I, I wasn't until I researched your background. Yeah, Chico State, straight party school, graduated the 2.07. So I had this like system down of how to pass classes without attending, without studying. I'd make friends with the teachers. If anyone from Chico State listens to this, they'll probably be like, oh, dude, that kid. It's almost like if you put that much effort into the actual work, you would have passed, but instead you just put in the effort into not having to put the work in. I had a system. So I would, day one, I'd walk up to the teacher. I'd tell them how excited I was about the class just so they knew me. So if I ever needed a favor, you know, they'd remember me as the nice kid that came up first day. And true story. One summer, I was working on Phone Freelancer and it started to actually make money. Like it was making like, I don't know, it's called like 5K a month or something like that. And I was taking a, a, a referral commission off of the jobs that I was sending to developers. And uh, I just stopped going to my summer school class and I straight had an F. And I explained this to the professor and he actually gave me a C in class. So I passed. So that was really cool. Was it an entrepreneurship class? No, but a funnier story on that. So I sold Phone Freelancer, and that was really the seed funding for a company called Business Apps. Felt B I Z N E S S apps. We can afford the correct spelling, but the name of the company actually, I actually haven't told this on a podcast. Like, why? Why did you call it Business Apps? Like, why couldn't you think of something cooler? The initial go-to-market strategy was cold call businesses. So I felt it'd be easier if like, hey, this is Andrew from business apps. So like you immediately know what it is. But we ended up scrapping that strategy and we ended up buying business apps correctly spelled as a domain, which I don't recommend spending money on domains like that. How much did you spend on that domain? That was a hundred thousand. And then I bought bizapps.com because my mom and like everyone I knew called my company biz apps and it drove me crazy. And so I had to have the domain. So I bought that one for like 75,000. But anyways, yeah, business apps was just, it started off with like really humble beginnings. My goal was to just not get a job. Like I had this goal where I was going to start 12 companies and really figure out which one's successful because I would read a lot about angel investing and kind of the rule of thumb was 
you need to invest in at least 12 different companies for you to get a return on your portfolio. So I kind of thought, okay, why don't I just kind of flip that, but do it with company building? So, okay, business apps. I'm going to make, it's going to be like an agency. I'll be able to make these apps really cheap for businesses and I'll make like 60, 80K and I won't have to get a job and I can keep kind of making new things and stuff like that. But business apps exploded, like literally a rocket ship that I actually, I even wrote a book about it just to share the story before I forget. Cause I was so young, I was straight out of college, but tying back to your question on entrepreneurship, I went a fifth year at Chico state specifically to buy more time to, so I took out more student loans. I like applied for entrepreneurship classes. I would kind of troll the teachers a little bit too. I was kind of like, like all, all my teachers like love me just cause like they knew what I was doing. Like they knew I wasn't going to get a job. Like they knew I was like an entrepreneur because I was, you know, heavily involved in the entrepreneurship program. I won fourth, third, second, and first place in the entrepreneurship competition that Chico State held every year. Cause I kept applying with like new businesses and like I kept business apps eventually got first, phone freelancer got second. You got second with business apps once, right? No, so I you can only apply with the same company once, but phone freelancer got second place. And then business apps was like a mic drop moment. So everyone like presents and you kind of have like a deck usually. And then I came with a very brief deck and more of a product demo. And I said, okay. And this is when the iPhone first came out. So Android is still figuring out their app store. BlackBerry is, we almost made a BlackBerry version. We were that early. So I do have to admit my success with business apps. I totally contributed to right place, right time, huge market, obvious solution to an obvious problem. So it was really like the product market fit was just unbelievable. But yeah, so I go and I present and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to make an app for this competition. And I kind of pre-filled in some information. Then I said, I'm going to send out a push note. And then I kind of demoed it. And then the teachers were just like, what? Wait, so this, you just built an iPhone app just now? Like, yeah. I'm like, here, I'll just change it up. And I changed the screen and everything. Here, I just updated it to show your face. And then I'll send out a push note. And I had my phone up and they're like, and the feedback was kind of funny. It was just like, it was kind of like they were dumbfounded because we had, I think, 30,000 annual career revenue at that point. And that was just me hustling, just basically signing up every bar, restaurant, pretty much every small business in Chico. And then the most meaningful part of that, so I got first place and I won a hundred bucks, which now they give out 10,000 or something like that. So, you know, I, I feel, you know, I really kind of helped bring attention to Chico State's entrepreneurship program. Cause there's a lot of great entrepreneurs at Chico State, but they didn't have the resources like Stanford or some of the other universities. So that's been awesome to see, you know, I was kind of like the, you can do a guy, you know, their first case study. Anyway, so a teacher that I was in his class where I wasn't coming and he knew this because I'd come in and say, hey, I'm just working on my business. I'm going to fail all of your classes. And he's like, that's great. I'd give you an A if I legally could. You know, you're actually practicing entrepreneurship. But he introduced me to an individual named Christian Friedland who became my initial angel investor. He invested like 50, 100K, I can't remember. And he was like my mentor. I still talk to him today. 
he makes fun of me. He like says I look like Ty Lopez because I used to wear glasses and then I got LASIK and I like to read books. So it's like the double whammy of like, oh gosh, man, this guy, but just amazing individual, like incredibly smart. And so, yeah, business apps basically went from zero to 4 million in three years, eventually grew it to 10 million annual recurring revenue, exited at 29 Sold to ESW Capital, which is a private equity firm. It's like a $10 billion fund. We were on Inc. Magazine's Faster Growing Companies list two years in a row. And this was before the iPhone had that like sign. You know, do you get like spam calls and you just ignore them? Yeah. So when you're on the Inc. 500 list, your phone explodes, like it breaks. Like you can't, I'm talking like 50 plus calls a day. And this is before the iPhone had the silence unknown caller feature. So I, I would change my number in advance, the second time in advance, but the first, I just changed my number twice. And I'd have friends that would send me like pictures of like, Hey, my boss told me to like reach out to every company on the list and here you are, like, I'm going to call you. So that was a huge achievement. And you know, that, that was like, I never thought I'd reach something like that, especially at such a young age. And again, that, that really, I think ties towards market timing where, you know, I just found a massive market with a massive need. And our go-to-market strategy was we scrapped selling to businesses directly and we moved towards a white label reseller model. So we started partnering with thousands of web agencies all across the world because they had customers that were small businesses because they were either managing their marketing or they made their website. And so instead of building out a gigantic sales team to push our product, we partnered with public companies, legal, whatever, you know, any company or organization or agency that had existing relationships with small business owners, we provided a white label solution so they could take, imagine like a a no code platform and it says Robert on it and it's got all your branding on it. You can set your own pricing and you kind of have a, a semi custom app solution. And so that's what we enabled agencies to do because their other option was to hire mobile developers in-house, which is expensive. And if they don't have projects coming in, you know, they're just sitting idle. So we solved like a clear pain, not just for SMBs who are just scrambling, like how do we connect with our customers where they are on their mobile devices, but also agencies who are looking to deliver a solution like that. So it was just, it was like product market fit. Like I've never felt in my entire life. And it was a fantastic ride. Why were you even enrolled in school? School's not cheap. So why were you even spending any money to go to college? I wanted to party. Couldn't you party without being enrolled? Uh, yeah. But I, I guess, put another way, I didn't have a clear plan. So actually, when I went into Chico State, I originally thought I would go into something like real estate. Like I'd start my own real estate firm or something like this. This is an 06. And so the bubble burst and I'm like, okay, that's not going to work. Now I'm thinking like, okay, who else makes a lot of money? Lawyers. I'm going to start my own law firm. And then I get my grades back and I'm like, okay, that's not going to work. So I went to you know just really figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I had an idea, but not a perfect picture of it. But I always say, you know, go to college because you learn way more outside of the classroom than you do inside the classroom. I met my wife there, met all my best friends there, two of the people I work with, I met at Chico State, and it was a perfect incubator for business apps. So I'm all about like the no college movement, but I think it's also kind of, you know, one-sided when it's 
compared just for the financial outcome. Like don't go to college, like go and do something. It's all like college is a great time to figure out who you are. Like, what do you want to be? Like, you know, being able to like meet friends, like learn social skills. And I think that's what Chico state does best at is you're social. Like you make friends, like half of my friends, like are, you know, executive sales leaders, executive marketing leaders. Some have started, you know, billion dollar companies. Shout out to Chris Rudy from Sendoso. He's a Chico State alum. So I guess, you know, we just kind of learn people skills. So I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I didn't put much thought into it. My mom was like, go. But yeah, I did take out student loans and all that stuff. But given my dad had passed away and my mom, there was something where we got student loans really cheap. So I benefited a little bit from that, like single mom, boba. I don't know how it works, but I had a good time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. I want to go back to how much money you spent on domains because that, that kind of blows my mind because I don't think I've ever spent more than $60 on a domain. And so I want to talk about what you think about getting that perfect domain. I think you said you wouldn't do it again. So talk to us a little bit about what you think about spending a lot of money on domains today. Good question. It depends on where you are. 
I think it's dumb unless you've really proven out your business. Like if you, you can always start with like a .io, you can start with like a .net. I don't recommend a .net, but a .co or something like that. And then as you grow, then you can buy the actual domain. And that's kind of what happened with business apps. We kind of bought businessapps.com with the correct spelling, like B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S apps.com. Almost as like a defensive move for a brand. So someone else just didn't launch some confusing company name the same. And then because people would go to the website and be like, takes me to like a buy the domain page. So I don't recommend it. It's a waste of money. Spend that money on something else. Tell us a bit about your current company, which is MicroAcquire and what your goal is with that business. That's actually how I found you. I didn't know about all these other businesses that you had until I started researching for this episode. So I want to talk quite a bit about MicroAcquire and and learn more about it from you. So MicroAcquire started out as a simple idea of just helping entrepreneurs get acquired without any fees or commissions and without involving any middlemen. So no brokers that typically take a 10 to 15% commission and really just giving an alternative option for founders looking to sell their companies. Today, MicroQuire has morphed into probably one of the largest acquisition marketplaces in the world, if not the largest. Over the last 90 days, we've done over 40 million of acquisitions. Total revenue on the marketplace is over a billion. It's kind of turned into a beast of a company. And um, what's crazy about it as well So again, just to kind of summarize what we do is we help startups get acquired much more efficiently than the current options in the market today. It's like, uh, I I call it a startup canon. You know, you list and basically the caliber of buyers are just very serious in terms of transacting. So it's not like a marketplace full of random people looking for blogs. It's private equity firms. It's Corp dev teams at public companies, it's other venture backed startups, it's bootstrap startups acquiring other bootstrap startups. So it's a true acquisition marketplace. It's not a buy an online business thing. Like you're buying like a real company with real valuable IP or paying customers and revenue. So it's a curated marketplace. We review every listing. We also, so if you're a founder listening to this and you wanted to list on MicroQuire, You just need to create a profile, fill in the basic information. Then my team takes that information and basically creates a SIM, which is a short presentation, basically geared towards buyers. Like, What is the revenue looking like? What is growth looking like? What is the tech stack? Who are the competitors? What is the founder's involvement? What is the founder's like LinkedIn profile so they can do all their due diligence? So we, we just... You know, basically make it really efficient. And this happens within two hours. So we can literally get your startup live. Maybe not two hours, but you know, four or five, six. And uh yeah, so we're we're doing hundreds of acquisitions. And uh I think what's really rewarding about it is our sole purpose is to just help entrepreneurs succeed. And I think, you know, I really fell in love with this company because I ran it for free for 10 months. It was like a side project. I just thought this is awesome. Let's help entrepreneurs get acquired. This is badass. Did you have that struggle when you sold your company? Is that what kind of gave you the idea? Did you pay like a huge broker fee or something like that? Yeah. So, but I didn't pay him. So, 
I went out to sell business apps in 2014, when I was like 26, worked with an investment bank. Guess what their minimum fee was? 250000 uh, A little bit more. 500000 800000 So they took uh, a 4 to 5% cut. And I remember telling them like, you guys have the sickest job in the world. I do all the work and I come in here and uh, you make some intros and credit to them. They did get us some offers. We had an offer at like 30 million, 20 million on secondary, meaning 20 million would go to me. Other 10 would go into the company for like a enterprise role of play. We did get a soft offer from a couple other companies. You could probably guess I'm like, do it yourself, website, XYZ. But I wasn't ready to sell at that time. I thought I was. I thought I wanted to push for like, you know, a larger exit. And so I kept running the business. I actually moved it out of San Francisco down to San Diego to kind of retool the culture and then focus on profitability. And we still ran the business kind of at break even, but with a lot of profit in the bank. And yeah, so that was kind of that idea where I thought, like, if there was a marketplace for me, I didn't even know brokers existed. I thought it was just investment banks and above. But brokers essentially work on the lower end of the market. And that end of the market is really, really overserved and almost taken advantage of in a sense, where again, 15% to sell a $2 million business is ridiculous. It's like a small seed round. So I thought, okay, that's silly. Let's remove that. And it's been pretty awesome to see uh, you know, the response from other entrepreneurs. And it's been even more awesome seeing the model actually works where you know, hundreds of companies are getting acquired. Again, we see an acquisition probably every day. Does it have to be a software company to list on the platform? Currently, yeah. I'm a big fan of, you know, like a beachhead strategy or like a bowling pin strategy. Beachhead is basically, you know, you want to really be narrow and focus on your initial launch. So right now we're initially launched specifically focused on SaaS only. Now we've kind of gone. So that was our beachhead SaaS because that was my background. That's what I knew. And the bowling ball business theory is, you know, there's two adjacent pins that really make sense to go after once you kind of feel like you've, you know, made some ground in your current market. So now we've expanded to e-commerce, crypto companies, newsletters, marketplaces, even some agencies. We're going to be adding some more categories, lots of Shopify SaaS applications. But for now, yeah, like the blanket statement is basically startups generating, you know, some form of revenue and have traction. One of, you mentioned this, but one of my favorite things about microacquire is the quality. I guess you could say of everybody involved, but more so the companies being sold. Because I've used to look, at, I forget if it was on Shopify or if it was another platform, but I've seen other platforms kind of like this that you could buy things. But it was just the quality of the businesses that you could buy was horrible. I was like, this listing is horrible. This quote unquote founder, side hustler has no idea what they're talking about in this description. And so when I went on microacquire, I was like, this quality is just to a whole nother level. And I I really like that. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I look at every listing and I I always joke around. I say like some people like to play tennis on the weekend. I like to play start. I love startups. Like I'll get nervous when I meet like a founder of like a big company. I'm like, oh my gosh, like you started like if I met the founder of like Calendly or something like that, I'd be like, dude, can you like sign like my shirt or something like that? Like I'm just, just you know, akin to sports, but uh, yeah. So I look at every startup and I 
I feel I have an understanding and I've, you know, worked with my team on a process. So we have some criteria, but I still look at every startup and I say, yeah, that looks good. No, that does not like, yes, no. And I think given just, you know, almost like an ESPN analysis of like, you know, I think that's a good player. That's not a good player. You know, I kind of do that with startups when we post. It's funny you mentioned that you do this like for fun. And I know you talk about on Twitter a lot about how you have to have fun with what you're doing. And I had this realization like last week or two weeks ago. I have a lot of stuff going on. I'm sure you do. A lot. Everybody does. Right. But usually when I did have free time, I'd almost always ride my dirt bike. That's like one of my favorite things to do in the world. And so I never really had free time because if I had free time, I'd go ride. But then I broke my leg racing. And so I'm, I can't ride right now. And so I had a weekend where I literally had no meetings. I had no travel. I couldn't ride my dirt bike. I had nothing like literally two days in a row. And I'm like, what do I even want to do? And the only thing I felt like doing was working on my business. I'm like, a lot of people go play video games or whatever. And I was like, I just want to sit home and work on my business. That's like all I want to do for fun. The thing with that is it's not work. You know, you're having fun. Like I always kind of say like, you know, you want to get to a place where working on your startup is like your favorite video game or playing your favorite sport. Where like when you get like 30 minutes, you're rushing up and you're like, hey, I got like an idea and it gets you excited. And I think that's so important for two reasons. One is if it's not fun, you're you will get burnt out. Like, don't go into building a startup if your intention is to make a bunch of money because it it's just so you can make money in ways that are much less stressful, way lower risk. Not everyone should be an entrepreneur. You know, you really need to enjoy it. And then the second part is if you don't enjoy it and you go into it, you're going to be competing against someone who does and they're going to kick your ass because they're going to put in the extra 20, 30%. And you could just do the math. Like we're basically, if you only work eight hours a day, but you're competing against someone who loves it and they're just going all in and they're working like 14 hour days. I don't know the math in my head, but like they're literally, they're producing. And again, not all time spent on work equals the same amount of results, but they're doing 40% more output than you are. So, and their output is probably better because coming from passion rather than just like, Hey, I got to do this. This sucks. Like, you know, they're doing little things and they're always thinking and they're always like trying to think bigger. So that's just how you win in life is like, I think people who, you know, if you find a passion, find a calling, find a purpose. And again, you spend like your whole life working, <laughs> like, like, you know, if you're blessed and you found a way to make money doing something that you love, like you won, like you don't need to be venture backed. Like you can be bootstrapped. You can be, you know, public company, but if you love it, you won. That's some rules I live by. I just, you know, happiness over everything. Do whatever you want, but if your work gets you up in the morning and gets you stoked, you've checkmated life. What happens if you have three of those projects lined up that you want to work on? They all make you feel the same way. They all have the same potential upside. And, you know, you talked about your beachhead strategy. You really got to focus on one thing. So how do you focus on that one thing? How do you pick which one to go with? I don't know if I could have a good answer for that, but I mean, if I was just you were asking me that, I'd say, you know, focus is key. It's okay to dabble and, you know, run, you know, small experiments and kind of like see which one picks up traction. But I think what you'll find is you'll naturally sort of gravitate towards one. Like, again, I ran microcar for free with no business model. I had no idea how to make money. 
people would say, you know, why don't you take commissions off listings? But you need to be like a you know certified California business broker and like go through all this compliance stuff, take commissions. We've since, you know, hired a team in-house to allow us to do those things. But I launched a business with full intentions of I don't care if I don't make any money. Like I don't care. Like I just want to help entrepreneurs. And that's where I started too. I started off with when I was thinking of my third startup, we don't need to backtrack on this, but after business apps, I started like a blockchain trading company. You didn't have it very long, right? Just like a year or two? Yeah, it was kind of like uh like a soft landing situation. But final point on MicroQuire is the first thing I did before even thinking of the idea was I wrote down the customer I wanted to serve because after going through, you know, two different startups, I knew how important it was to love the customer you serve. And so I wrote down startups and entrepreneurs and then started looking around the market at, you know, solutions or problems that they were facing and noticed no one was really addressing or innovating in acquisitions or exits. And um MicroQuire was micro born. Talk to us a bit about your business model today, because you have one and it's doing well. So I want to I learn a little bit more about that. So it's really simple. We just charge buyers. We call it MicroQuire Premium, where buyers pay an annual subscription to contact sellers. So when you go in the marketplace, every listing is private, no company information is shown, meaning the company name, how to contact the seller, any P&L or metrics that they've uploaded. All that is completely private and stored in a private data room. And then to contact the founders, you have to subscribe to MicroQuire Premium. We review and approve your account to make sure you're not some random person and you seem like a somewhat credible buyer. So we also not only approve every listing, we approve every buyer as well to keep the marketplace very, very high quality. It's kind of like, like a club where basically like you got to show us your ID to get in and stuff like that. That's a terrible analogy. My team literally is, they always tell me like, I have the worst analogy. Another analogy I'll say about MicroQuire, which is also a bad one. It's like a Ferrari dealership where basically you can look at the cars, but if you're like, hey, I want to buy that car, who's the seller? I have questions about the mileage. How has the engine been maintained? What happened with this chip? You have to pay for that access. And then you send a request to the seller seller receives it and then they can review the buyer's LinkedIn profile, send chats, you know, back and forth, have them sign an NDA if they choose. And then they grant them access into their data room. So that's our, our business model now. We're at about 900,000 in recurring revenue. We'll probably hit a million this month. And then we're going to start moving into, we're releasing an M&A directory where as we start to work with these larger businesses, we're going to start working with brokers. We're going to start working with investment bankers. We're going to start working with M&A advisors and accountants and attorneys and wealth managers and due diligence experts, really consolidating the whole M&A marketplace. Kind of like Zillow from M&A, where we address everything from valuations to escrow to advisory to financing. So you can basically, you know, we want to make it extremely easy for founders to get acquired. And it's really important to know, we're building this for founders. We're not building this for buyers. You know, buyers are a huge part of this, but buyers will jump through, you know, that was that one like Ninja Warrior show. I don't know. I think it's called Ninja Warriors. Yeah, maybe it's Ninja Warrior. But yeah, buyers will go through like a Ninja Warrior course to get to the best deals. And so 
we want to basically empower founders to have an edge at the table with buyers because with a lot of buyers, it's Tuesday for them. But for the founder, it's like the most life-changing event ever. So we want to empower them, educate them. And so the thought behind the advisory directory is some founders have these businesses where maybe they could use some help from a broker, or maybe they can use some help from an investment banker, or maybe they just need some guidance in terms of how to legally close the acquisition properly. And so we'll have a full directory of fully vetted individuals that can do that, but at a much lower rate. So they'll help increase the value of your startup. And then you pay less because typically these individuals spend half their time on sales and marketing, just like any other business. And we have thousands of startups that we can drive business to and then allow them to drive down the price because they're not having to basically you know, spend money on sales and marketing like they currently do. So think of like Upwork or like Yelp with like ratings and reviews. You can hire these people, have an agreement in place on scope of work and all that fun stuff. So I actually got a note today. It was released. It's not live today, but we finished it today. We're going to polish it up over the next week and she'll be out. It'll be out probably by the time. I don't know how fast you put out these podcasts, but it'll be out probably by the time you release this. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. 
So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Another thing you're doing, and it's been interesting to follow on, on Twitter, is this debate with TechCrunch, I guess you could say, and this idea of how much news coverage VC-backed companies get versus bootstrap companies. Talk to us a bit about what you're doing to help provide coverage to bootstrap companies and why it's even needed. Yeah, I think you know bootstrap companies are a very underserved and underrecognized segment of the startup ecosystem. Plain and simple. Why is that? Uh, I don't know. Like for reference, business apps with Bootstrap, but we were covered in you know tons of major media. We were in TechCrunch like twelve times. We were in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Business Insider, Venture Beat. We were everywhere. And I think there's just been a shift in media towards just this you know fundraising cycle that I just kind of called out. I just said, hey, this is getting a little guys because I've previously written for TechCrunch. I've been reading that blog for the past decade. I'm, Nothing but love for them. I just started providing them some feedback and others seemed to agree. So with that, I didn't get a response back. And instead of continuing to like bitch and complain, I just said, hey, I'll just do it myself because I want to read these stories. And uh, that's what we're doing. And what we want to do is we want to, you know, motivate and inspire and, you know, really show entrepreneurs what's possible. When you read an article about like a company raising 200 million, that doesn't do anything for a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like an article related to like Tom Brady throws like a 99 yard touchdown. It's like, I can't do that. Maybe that's not the best analogy again. But like, if I'm just starting out as an entrepreneur, that doesn't help me. I want to learn like, how did you get started? Like, how hard was it? Like, what was the like, you know, stuff I can relate to? My intention with TechCrunch was just to bring awareness like, hey guys, it's getting a little old. And then it just kind of blew up. Like, I saw over, at this point, 10 million impressions, like 4,000 likes, like 500 retweets. My inbox has been exploding with like, yeah, we agree. And it bums me out in a way because it's almost like, you know, there's these gatekeepers in the small Silicon Valley bubble where people are too afraid to speak up. Like, oh, don't talk back to TechCrunch. Like they may not cover you again, but it's like that. Like if you have an opinion, this is entrepreneurship. Speak your mind. Like you know, that might sound a little aggressive, but I'm a competitive person. And, you know, when I think that I see something that is unfair to others in the market, I speak my mind. And then if change doesn't happen that way, I take action and do something about it. So I've launched a publication, Bootstrappers. You know, we're no tech crunch. Like we don't have like a decade of experience, but we're taking a real shot. I hired four writers. I have a terrific head of content. We have about over 200 startups in the queue. So we're starting to realize like, okay, like, you know, there's a lot of interest here and we're just looking to inspire, motivate and show entrepreneurs what's you know possible outside of basically bring attention and recognition to entrepreneurs taking an alternative path than the typical BC route. So 
basically just writing the blog that I think the startup community deserves. And I think there's a lot of people that would agree with that. You mentioned that you didn't have a business model or monetization strategy for MicroAcquire for 10 months. So you might not have one yet for Bootstrapper, but what is your plan? How do you plan to monetize it? None. I don't. And I won't. It's completely free. It's literally a gift to the startup community. This sounds like kind of cheesy, but I just want entrepreneurs to win. If you're venture back, bootstrapped, if you're public, if you're on Mars, whatever, whatever you're doing, like I just want you to win. I want all entrepreneurs to win. And so, you know, when it's all said and done with MicroQuire, I just want to be known as someone who really helped, you know, push entrepreneurs forward in terms of shining light on alternative ways to build companies. Like I bootstrap business to a fantastic exit. Like that wasn't celebrated, but I'm pretty happy with it. But you read about like these dumb aqua hires. And then what happens there is like the title should read, like most funding rounds should read, hey, founder sells, you know, 30% of his company to XYZ firm. And it's celebrated. It's like celebrating the cost of a wedding. And then in terms of, you know, aqua hires and stuff getting covered, that's literally like, hey, startup didn't work out. They all got jobs. And it's all celebrated. And and again, I guess it should be celebrated in a way. I don't want that to be taken out of context. But I think what that does is it just creates this like weird stigma in Silicon Valley where founders begin to feel like building a billion dollar business, like getting acquired by like this huge company is how you succeed as an entrepreneur. And that's not the truth. And that's not the reality for 99% of entrepreneurs. And yeah, just hoping to, you know, shed some light and just inspire entrepreneurs that again, you don't have to like go down that path. There's another path. For those who don't know, what is an aqua hire? That would be when a company acquires a company for the team. So you have a stellar team. Typically it's, you know, when things aren't working out, not all the time. Sometimes you'll they'll use the IP, but usually they completely scrap the IP. So whatever you're working on, like a recent acquisition on MicroQuire, it literally was company raised 12 million, acquired by LinkedIn, sold by IP for 250,000. So they basically all got jobs. And it, it was like a COVID situation. I felt really, you know, empathetic to the founder. So I talked to him and I tried to give him like a like, dude, you know. Some things like you just can't control. That's another piece of advice I would give randomly is write down all the things you can control and then write down the things you can't control and throw away the second list and just focus on things you can control. But that's an acquire. They basically joined a larger company and then whatever they were working on gets usually thrown away. I mentioned that I found you from MicroQuire, but one of the reasons why I stuck around to really follow you is because of your philosophy that not every business has to be a billion dollar company. And I've talked about that for a long time and I've felt it myself for even longer. And I've talked about it on this podcast because I think people, if you go into a business and you feel pressure to have to build it to a billion dollar business in order to be successful, sometimes you might make decisions that aren't in the best interest of the business and you actually end up failing because of that. Where I believe instead, if you realize that a $1 to $10 million business is still massively successful and can change your life, you can make different decisions. You don't have to worry about trying to get to a billion dollars. And I think you have a higher chance of success. I would completely agree with that. I always say, you know, go down the path of like these three businesses, like start something small first for experience and to learn. Like 
trust me, like the amount that you can learn by just launching something simple as cash flowing agency or a blog is enormous. Maybe it doesn't take off, maybe it does, but you'll learn a ton. And then business number two, I recommend starting a bootstrap SaaS or e-commerce company, something that you can sell to make you financially secure. And then on your third company, that's your chance. Like you're financially secure, change a market, disrupt something huge. Like, dude, like go, you know, reinvent the airplane, whatever, whatever your thing is. Like that's my philosophy. And I'm I'm on company number three, and that's what I'm currently doing. I'm trying to essentially disrupt investment banking and ideally help mint, you know, tens of thousands of millionaires through microquire. I'm only one person, but you've said multiple times that you want to inspire people. And I can say that you've inspired me specifically with one example is started going on the platform. I started seeing these micro SaaS companies that were selling. And it's not life-changing money, but it's these small micro SaaS companies that are, like you said, it fit into that number one or number two company you mentioned. And I'm like, I've always wanted to learn how to program. I've always wanted to learn how to code, but I've never had like really... One, I never had time. And two, I never really had an incentive to do it. I just wanted to do it. Now, because of this, I'm inspired to start my own micro SaaS eventually at some point. And so it's like kind of encouraged me and inspired me to learn to code so that I could eventually list the company on here if I don't buy one on here first. Yeah. And I hear that all the time and I love it. It's like, you know, it's almost like insurance policy. So if you build something and it doesn't really take off, but you get it to like 10, 20,000 in revenue, who will buy that? Like fast, you know, because they'll see it as, you know, an opportunity to scale it, but you learned and you recruited all your costs. Like, you know, you didn't, because there's so many stories of founders like building companies and, you know, spending money and not recouping it or just getting over it and then letting it die on its own. And so, you know, those aren't like, you know, the ideal companies that like, actually, no, those are up there with my favorite, but that would be um, a good conversation around like the two sides of microquire. There's ones looking for million dollar businesses and tons looking for like those smaller, you know, funner opportunities. And then it's a win for the founder as well, because they get to celebrate. They got acquired. Like that's an accomplishment. Like who cares if it's 10K, 20K, 50K, 100K or 10 million? Like you sold a business. Congrats, man. Put that on your resume. So yeah, man, totally agree with you. You've chosen to build microacquire in public. What does it mean to build in public? And why did you decide to go down that route? Honestly, one day I was like, hey, here's my revenue. That was it. There was no strategy. There was no thought. I don't overthink things. Did you see the bootstrappers launch oh, yeah. um, on Tuesday? You want to know how that went down? I saw a million people retweeted. I saw your feed filled with tons of people talking about it. Day before the launch, I had a, a one-on-one with my head of content. And we were supposed to launch on September 7th, but I meant to write September 2nd in the tweet. And I was like, oh, well, you guys got more time now. And then I had a meeting with Chris, who's an absolutely incredibly talented storyteller. I said, the blog looks great. We have you know eight articles. We have like 10 in the queue. Let's just launch this thing. And I called my VP of engineering. We rehooked the domain bootstrappers.com, quickly created a page on product hunt. That's how we launched it. Literally 7 p.m. I was like, this looks good. Let's go. Let's launch it tomorrow. And so are you a person that's not necessarily focused on perfection? You're more worried about progress than perfection? Because for me, I'm such a perfectionist and I know it's a flaw that I have, 
but I, I get in my way of my own self because I would just want everything to be perfect before I release it. Well, I think you learn more when you ship quicker. Like we had good feedback on like, it looked weird on some like browsers. We already fixed that, you know, feedback on the stories. But I always say, you know, good today is better than perfect tomorrow. I live by that. And so that was an opportunity for me to also show the team. Like, I don't just say it like I'm serious. Let's launch it. Let's go. Yeah. I think speed of execution is what wins markets. So when you check MicroQuire in 90 days, it'll be, I'll promise you, it'll be a completely different company. We got some big things in the pipeline that I'm extremely excited about. And it's all a team effort. I can't really take credit for much of it at this point because I, I have an amazing team. We added like a hundred or actually like a thousand horsepower to the company over the last three months. And we're having a ton of fun, which is the most important metric that we track. We don't really track it. We just laugh. We had a debate about is a hot dog a sandwich yesterday? Is cereal soup? So that's another thing I always recommend to founders is have fun with your team. Like figure out what motivates them, make it enjoyable. And that's how you can really, really do something really, really special with a great group of people and then have a great time too. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by letting the guest ask me a question. So what question do you have for me? What do you like to do for fun? Race motocross work on my businesses? That's always my first interview question. People are always surprised. I always, when I hire, I look for motivation, attitude, and skill set in that order. If I don't feel you're motivated, I don't feel you have a good attitude. I just can't like vibe with you, laugh with you. It won't work on either side. So I usually like to dive in and get to know you as a person rather than how good you are at podcasting or how good you are at you know marketing or whatever your skill set may be. So motocross, I dig that. I'd hire you. A lot of times skills can be taught, right? Those first two things that you talk about, motivation, you can't teach that. Can't teach that. And just whether you enjoy like talking to somebody, you can't obviously can't teach that. So it's like... Dude, Michael Jordan, Jerry Rice, Tom Brady, like what made them great was their motivation. Like they obviously had the skill set, but without motivation, there's countless examples of athletes with you know, the same level of skill set and athletic ability without the motivation. Motivation is what makes people great, in my opinion. You can learn everything. And that's really the number one skill of any entrepreneur is being able to teach yourself anything. If you're motivated enough, you can learn the skills, right? So I totally understand and agree. I know people are going to enjoy this conversation. I'm going to want to check out what you're doing. Where's the best place to find you? Probably Twitter. As you can probably see, I'm pretty active. I'm either, you know, calling out TechCrunch. I'm going to stop doing that just because it's, you know, I made my point, but follow me if you want to hear about, you know, stuff about how to build companies, how to have fun, you know, with your team, learn about other companies bootstrapping their way to success. That's kind of my jam. And then check out MicroQuare. If you're looking to, you know, build or excuse me, buy or sell a business, there might be something for you there. I will put links to all those different resources in the show notes for you guys to go check out. And maybe you'll see one of my little micro SaaS companies on MicroAcquire someday, or maybe on a future episode, I'll be telling you guys a story about how I bought a company from the MicroAcquire marketplace. So, all right, guys, go check out Andrew. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, man. Dude, thanks so much for um, having me on this. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right, guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. 
Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.